Paul, I had a conversation. Well, actually, it was more like a meeting with my boss and the rest of the team. Actually, it was my boss's boss. And he said, he really, you know, you know I'm in sales and marketing. I do, yeah. He said, guys, when you're talking about what you do, I want you to stop using words like kind of, sort of, and well, that's the gist of it. And this made me perk up because, and he used an example, I think he was using an example of John Tory, mayor of Toronto, where John Tory was talking about something, I don't know if it was a COVID-related thing, but he said, and so that's sort of the gist of what we're trying to do. And he just said, that's so weak, so weak sounding. And I wanted to just chat a little bit about that because I've been paying a lot of attention recently in the last week to myself when I'm speaking and I'm listening to other people speaking. And there are a lot of kind ofs, sort ofs, and gist of it's going on out there. Oh, I'm sure we're all very guilty of using those words, uh, myself included. I know I certainly use many of those words and even a lot of the filler words like like i'm certainly guilty of that one like is one i I want to get rid of from my vocabulary too yeah yeah and if if you make that conscious effort to get rid of those words man i don't think you realize how much you use it until you try to make that effort to to purge yourself of those sort of useless filler words yeah yeah your your boss is absolutely correct and especially in your role where as you said, you're in sales. You got to be direct and to the point, and and not waffle about. Um, yeah, that's actually really good advice. Not only in your job, but life in general. Like just your day to day interactions with other people. To not use those weak words just probably makes you sound a bit more confident, maybe a bit more authoritative. Yep. So that's that's good advice. Well, and I did a little bit of research on this, actually, because I I wanted to, I didn't think this was something he just made up. I mean, he probably did notice it and, and mentioned it to us, but I, I did a little bit of research, actually, on this, and the those words not so much the ums and ahs and uh, ands and sort and the, the and so you know those typical kind of killer kind of see i just did it right there those typical <laughs> those typical filler words i think these sort ofs and kind ofs are something different and so i looked it up and there actually is a word, a name for this and it it's called a downtoner Okay, I've never heard of that before. Nor had or I. At least, yeah, I haven't heard of that, that terminology, but is there a definition for it? Yeah, so Downtoner, down, I think Downton Abbey when I read it first. Yeah. I don't know if it's Downtoner or Downtoner. Downtoner are words or phrases which reduce the force of another word or phrase. Downtoning is the opposite of emphasizing. The most common downtoners are a bit... A little bit, sort of, kind of. Hmm. Interesting to know, and especially the fact that you said it was the Toronto's mayor, John Tory, was was caught using those waffling kind of words, especially given his particular position. Here he is doing news conferences trying to sell Torontonians on on the the reasons of the 
COVID lockdown and various restrictions, you got to be pretty firm on that. You got to be very confident in the information that you're portraying. So to come across by using kind of and that's the gist of it, that's that's not good. <laughs> okay, so that's the other thing. Now, there are sometimes uses for this that are well-meaning or well-intended. I managed to find an article from the New York Times back in 2014 they, the article is called The Kind of Sort of Era. And this is actually something that's become very common recently. It's, it's, a, it's a trend that's been happening in our culture or in our way of speaking for, for quite a while now. So he uses an example. He says that uh, he's calling them also hedge words. These are hedge words. They're meant to lessen a statement's force or meaning. He says, for instance, here's the University of Cambridge ecologist Peter Walsh speaking recently about Ebola. And this was a few years ago when Ebola was a big topic. He says, what's nasty about it, about it is it sort of melts your blood vessels. <laughs> so it's, he's trying to, yeah. I guess, lessen the force of it. If it if it says what's nasty about it is is it melts your blood vessels, maybe that's because it doesn't exactly do that. It's just more of a metaphorical thing. Hmm. Um, and here's Edward Snowden. I was trained as a spy in sort of the traditional sense of the word. Yeah, but how often does the average person use sort of reduces what is it? What was the comment you said about the blood vessels? The uh, Sort of melts your blood vessels. Yeah, sort of melts the blood vessels. Yeah, how often do you use that in a regular conversation? Yeah, sort of melts my blood vessels. <laughs> well. Hey. But to the average person, though, like when we're talking about that, it, it just in general, I think it's it's good advice to, uh, to try to cut out those words. And not to say that there isn't certain situations in just regular candid everyday conversation where you're going to say sort of and in that kind of thing it's it's going to be part of your dialogue no matter what but you're right if, if you are on a business call um if depending on what it is that you do for your profession um you have to be confident um you know i'm in a position where i'm, I'm dealing with customers and you know providing um i work in insurance risk control um, the information that I portray, I have to be confident in what I advise our, our customers. Yeah. If you're if you're waffling and if you're unsure and kinda and well, I think you can kind of do this, then it doesn't carry as much weight. You, you have to be aware of that. Depending on who your audience is, if you're just shooting the breeze with some friends, nah, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. Right. Yes. But in a in a business environment, I think it's very important. It's, it's good advice. Yeah, this Gabriel Doyle guy here, PhD in linguistics, he says here that he believes that sort of is a deprecision device. The speaker is saying, don't think of this as being overly accurate. So if you say, I'm sort of, I'm sort of looking into this research or I'm sort of investigating this, it doesn't, maybe you're not committed to it in a way, like you're not committing the listener or the person you're talking to to think that you're 100% doing it. But if that's the case, that could be a very negative effect you're having. If you say, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sort of looking into whether this is an area of the business we want to investigate as, as a potential place of revenue. Well, that sounds pretty weak to me. It does, yeah. Just the last thing on this, um, the, the article's funny, and I'll include this in the show 
show notes, but they talk about it. Imagine it was used in literature. So you think about um, think about Charles Dickens. It was sort of the best of times. It was sort of the worst of times. I came, I saw, I kind of conquered. <laughs> I nice. sort of have a dream. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little bit of a dream. Yeah, yeah maybe, sometimes. <laughs> okay, let's move on. You had a topic we chatted about a few days ago about COVID-19 and the administration of the vaccine. There are some groups being prioritized ahead of others. The first-line workers I'm hearing is one of the priorities, long-term care workers, and then long-term care um, residents. So those that are maybe in the final stages of life, older, and in these long-term care facilities are being prioritized. But something was just in the news recently about a prison where the inmates or the convicts were being administered the vaccine before even the staff from what I, I understand. So what made you want to talk about this one today? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's pretty hard to choose a topic that isn't COVID related during these uh, interesting times indeed, especially as we are in lockdown. Well, we could, but we kind of uh, want to talk about it a little bit. Well, we, we do because this is these are topics that are, are the most interesting right now, and these are the ones that are, are garnering a lot of debate and well, discussion. No, um, I saw a really interesting um, topic the other day that, uh, what was the lady's girl's name from American Idol? Kelly Clarkson just relisted her house for $9 million. That was in the news. Do You don't think that's more oh. interesting? No, not really. <laughs> hey, I can't afford to buy a $9 million house, so it doesn't affect me. <laughs> okay, go on. But, yeah, just, yeah, getting back to this particular article that I saw that has, has been in the news over the last couple of weeks. And although it is a Canadian topic, I'm sure it is also very prevalent to other countries across the world right now, because I'm sure it isn't just a Canadian-only debate. Um, but yes, as you mentioned before, it is the debate as to whether or not uh, prisoners should receive the COVID-19 vaccines before the rest of the, the general population. Um and the reason this has become an issue is that um, various prisons across Canada in, in multiple provinces have been provided uh, with shipments of the Moderna vaccine. Um, and this has occurred throughout the month of January. Yeah. And this has obviously created quite a bit of a debate, certainly amongst a lot of the Canadian politicians. Um, Ontario Premier Doug Ford has come out against it. Uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, the opposition leader, is very much against this. Uh, but yeah, this is the fact that certain inmates have received the, the vaccine um, ahead of members of the rest of the population, meaning residents of long-term care facilities, uh, frontline healthcare workers, other medically vulnerable people. Uh, people in senior centers. So yeah, it's, and I'm sure that Canada is not alone in this. But obviously, there's all there's been issues over the, the shall we say the slow pace of the vaccine rollout. I think we can all, we were all hoping it would be a little bit more, um, you know, a, a little bit more prevalent at, at this point in time. Considering it's been out for about six weeks now, we we're hoping that more people would be, um, would be vaccinated. So. You know, the vaccines that have been made available throughout the month of January are obviously very precious. And 
Yes, it does raise the question is who gets priority? Who, who should be vaccine? Who should get the vaccine first? Um, so there's a lot of arguments against this and some for this. So let, let's take a look at those. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of politicians um, have come out against it. Really, their main argument being is that dangerous criminals should not be vaccinated before long-term care patients. Yeah. So what, what gives these prisoners the right to be vaccinated before other people who are very much at risk? Um, but what about old you know, prisoners? Well, well in, and I'm just going to get to that point. There is a lot of, um, a lot of people that... Or at-risk prisoners. Are, yeah, a lot of people that are proponents for this saying that the fact that there has been a lot of outbreaks within the prisons, it's almost in some ways inhumane treatment. Um, because of the outbreaks, a lot of these prisoners are confined to their cells for up to 23 and a half hours a day. Yeah. So it's in many ways sort of become solitary confinement sort for these prisoners. Sort of became? Yeah, there you go. Sort of. Get rid of that. <laughs> it has. It has become solitary confinement. 23 and a half hours a day. That's, yeah. that's a long period of time to be cramped in a cell. That's yeah, how I and feel in my basement here while I'm remote yeah, working. There you go. No windows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go on. But it should be noted that at least the article that I was reading noted that it was elderly and medically vulnerable inmates that have been targeted for receiving the vaccine. So I don't believe that it has been like a... a, a roll out across all prisons right. to receive vaccines. Maybe it's just being targeted. Right. They didn't say, okay, in the order of how it's going to go, we'll do convicts, long-term care, first line, front-of-line workers. It's not exactly mm -hmm. that. It's not laid out like that. Yeah. But it overall, this is all comes down to optics. The fact that criminals, people, inmates, are receiving the vaccine before a lot of long-term care patients, a lot of medically vulnerable patients, um, frontline healthcare workers. Um, even the union for the correctional officers has weighed in on this and has um, stated that the uh, corrections officers should be vaccinated long before the, the inmates because they're frontline workers. They're putting themselves at, at danger. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a huge debate right now going on as to the whole prior prioritization of, of who gets the vaccine. Um, but I tell you, it's from a, an optic standpoint, it really does, doesn't look good when you have um, inmates getting, getting vaccinated. And I, I do understand the reasons. I, I realize that yes, there are elderly and, and medically vulnerable inmates that, that, you know, when you really look at the, at the criteria for those who receive the vaccines, Yes, those people do make the list, but I think from a, from an optic standpoint, when it when it's so fresh and, and new in terms of the vaccine rollout, and, and because there's so many issues that is, has plagued this rollout, um, it just looks really bad on the government when they're trying to justify the fact that inmates are getting these vaccines. Um, it doesn't send a very good message to the rest of, of, of the Canadian public. Um, so... Although I do see both sides to the argument, I, I, I would come out in favor of those who are, who are against the vaccine, against, um, you know, the, the concept of, of providing the vaccines to the inmates. I, I personally don't think it should happen. So where should they be in the 
because there's a couple things well, here. You have just regular convicts or inmates who are, mm. for the most part, healthy. But then you also have ones that are older and maybe have some pre-existing conditions that make them more susceptible to dying. Yeah. So there's but those, that. Those, but those people shouldn't be prioritized over the long-term care facilities. I think when you still are having deaths at long-term care facilities, when there's still problems with, with outbreaks, that needs to be dealt with like beyond question that needs to be dealt with first but i believe some of this has to do with also how the vaccine has been distributed among the federal jurisdiction and the provincial jurisdiction Mm -hmm. so that if the federal government has a certain amount of doses that they would administer federally so for example in these federal prisons or federal Mm -hmm. whatevers um, what do you do? I guess the the real thing is the decision could have been made in advance rather than like I'm saying, do you take, do you go and just take all this, the supply from the federal government and run it out to the long-term care facilities? So how it works then in Canada, at least, and I think it's the same for pretty much every other country in that it's the federal government that is the recipient of the, the vaccines. It's the federal government that is in charge of of the vaccine rollout. So it's the federal government that is giving the individual uh, doses to the various provinces for distribution. The provinces are the ones that distribute it, but they are not the ones that receive the doses directly from the manufacturers. So in this case, because the federal government has been under a lot of criticism for the very slow pace of the vaccine rollout. I'm just saying from an optics standpoint, it looks really poor right now. I'm not arguing against the fact that, yes, at some point, sure, the the um, elderly and, and medically vulnerable inmates should be on that list at some point. But I'm just thinking, well, at least in my opinion, right now, it just looks really poor from an optics standpoint to the rest of Canadians who are, are desperate to get the vaccines, those who have loved ones in long-term care facilities that are currently dying from COVID, um, it just sends a really poor message. So, Well, I guess it's not helped by the fact that the, the rollout has not been going very quickly or very smoothly. I think no, and perhaps it, and if it, that it, was going well, it wouldn't have shone a light so much on this particular issue. Yeah, I, I agreed completely that the fact that the, the vaccine rollout should be far ahead of, of the, the process than it is right now. Um, you know, the latest headlines being that I believe both Moderna and Pfizer have rolled back some of the expected uh, vaccine shipments. So, uh, this yeah. is uh, that's exacerbated sort of a, it. Yeah, it's a very frustrating time indeed. And then, you know, when you hear that inmates are are getting vaccinated, just the just the headline itself, it sparks a lot of anger and, and debate amongst the rest of Canadians that are like, "What about my mom who's in a long term care facility? Yeah. What about her? You know, how come she is the back of the line type of thing?" So, yeah, this is one of those those headlines that. Um, yeah, it really jumps out at you, and, and at first glance, it's like, whoa, what the, what the heck is this? Um, yeah, you think about yeah, the, murderers and rapists getting the vaccine ahead of grandma in the long-term mm-hmm. care facility. Absolutely, I can see it 
getting people's getting people up in arms but i you know mm. there is a humane aspect to this that uh, okay you're in jail but these are fellow human beings and they should be looked after but i don't think the website here i was just on the canada.ca website doesn't do any favors to this it says here Groups that will get the vaccine first, residents and staff of shared living settings who provide care for seniors, adults 70 years of age and older, healthcare workers who have direct contact with patients, including those who work in healthcare settings, personal support workers, adults in indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Then it says, as an additional as additional COVID-19 vaccines and supplies become available, the following populations should be offered vaccinations. Healthcare workers not included in the initial rollout, residents and staff of all other shared living settings, such as homeless shelters, correctional facilities, housing for migrant workers. So here you are, the words they say, as additional vaccines and supplies become available, the following populations mm-hmm. should be va- offered vaccinations. They are not in the first tier of, of vaccination priority. Yet we are seeing examples of it of it happening. Yeah. Well, there there you go. I think that document kind of speaks volumes to the fact that that document yeah, on, speaks on, volumes. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> well, no. It it right there on paper it states that uh, correctional inmates. You said are kind of earlier, in, so that's why I repeated oh, it okay. without your kind of. Okay. I'm counting, Paul. I'm counting them. Oh no! You, you got the the check marks. The going listeners there. are counting too. Yeah. No, but I was saying that the document that you just read off there acknowledges the fact that uh, inmates in correctional facilities are further down that list. Yep. Yet somehow they have they have been prioritized somewhat. It's so, logistics. Yes, these individuals. Yeah, it, it's a obviously I realize that it's a monumental task the the whole vaccine rollout and and there's going to be a lot of debate going on for several months um, before. Before there's enough vaccines that the general population get starts to get access to it, uh, but yeah, I don't think this debate's going to be going away anytime soon. But uh, yeah, we've got another topic. It's uh, COVID related. Um, this was another one that uh, caught our interest, and this has to do with the the new travel restrictions that yes. have been imposed. Yep. And uh, as mentioned, it's tough to not find a topic that is related to COVID-19 these days. But um, again, these are the topics that are sparking a lot of debate and interest amongst people. And um, not the very least, least of which are our listeners. Yeah. But don't you, I think listeners love to be told what they're in, what they sh- are interested in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we may be <laughs> yeah. making some assumptions, but we're going with it anyway. Yeah, they've updated the restrictions on travel. A lot of people would say this is a long time coming. There was a Mm -hmm. a whole, in the month of, I guess, late December, there was a big controversy around some politicians that had been traveling and came under fire for traveling when we were in a lockdown. We were in a lockdown at the later part of December, yet a number of politicians that came to light were traveling I mean, and then they actually, I saw statistics, I think it said 1 million people traveled over the Christmas holidays. Hmm. So there's clearly a reason to crack down on travel. And this in particular, do you have the list there of the different restrictions that... uh, Yeah, so within Canada, the new restrictions actually take into effect today being January 31st. Uh, The new rules is that 
um, travelers coming back into Canada need to have a COVID test done upon arrival. Yeah. Um, they are still subject to the 14-day quarantine. They don't have to get a uh, test but, before they leave, do they? Um, I, I'm sure they don't. I'm not. No, I think that the the fact that they get a COVID test upon arrival, I think that has now replaced it. I think previously they had to get a COVID test three days prior to their flight, but the problem was is that a lot of people were still contracting the COVID nineteen within that three day at the airport on the or way to the airport in the taxi the the day before the day after they got exactly. the test yeah yeah so i think that was probably the issue that was causing a lot of uh, covid outbreaks from international travelers is because you know this uh this clean covid test that one had in hand arriving at the airport really was meaningless because yeah. it didn't reflect the the current state of, of their their medical uh, condition at that point well and i've heard that a few times that I, people i know who get tr- covid tests quite regularly like those in the film industry i have a friend well mike he's our he's been mm-hmm. on our show a couple times that he, he can come over and say well i just got the results of my covid test that i had yesterday and I, it was free so i'm good to go hmm mm-hmm. Who says? Maybe you got it on your way back home from the test. Exactly. These the the COVID nineteen tests are only a snapshot in time. Um, you know, by the time you get your results, which may be a day, two, three days later, um, a lot has happened since then. But yeah, getting back to these these new restrictions. Um, so yes, they have to get a COVID test upon arrival, and the new thing now is that you have to spend up to three days of your fourteen day quarantine in a designated hotel. And this can cost upwards of up to $2,000. So I think that the government has imposed this to, first of all, discourage people from doing international travel because you're right, this has been a a debate that's been going on a lot over the last, especially over the last, uh, well, six weeks or so in around Christmas. Um, A lot of people have been, you know, ignoring the rules and, and, in flying away over Christmas time or, or various uh, sunny destinations during the month of January, and it it has to stop because especially now because of the the new um, I believe it's the new UK variant, and then I think there's a South African variant as well. Um, so that there's we're not out of the the woods yet in terms of of our COVID numbers. Um, you know that we're we're still in it in a dangerous position where. It is very irresponsible to have that international travel when this has been something that has been repeated over and over and over again for for months. This isn't anything new, yet people still continue to travel. And it's still one of the main reasons why there are still a lot of outbreaks and, and new strains that are New strains, I think, Canada. yes, but I did yeah. hear something that said that travel is fairly minor in terms of the okay. way this is being transmitted. Yeah, but, that, but the thing is that, that the new strains create more outbreaks yes. because it's so contagious, yep. yeah. Agreed. And I, wouldn't, I wanted to see about the $2,000 thing because my thinking, they were going to announce a list of hotels apparently that qualify mm-hmm. as, as places that you can go in quarantine. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe they'll have... A list from everything from the Ritz Carlton down to the like a chain, like a, a budget hotel, a days in, or 
stay at the half an app for 50 bucks a night. <laughs> Twenty dollars. Yeah, an hour. who knows? Like it just says it could be up to two thousand dollars. But I'm so I'm reading here it, that it says that this is actually designed to curtail the travel or discourage the travel is yeah. by making it expensive. So they must have yeah. said, okay, you can travel, but you have to stay at a, a government-approved facility, and it's going to cost mm-hmm. you $2,000 Canadian, according to this, to do it. Okay. So yeah. I, I, I think that that will be much more of a deterrent than fishing around for the best hotel rate, which is what 90% of people would probably do, is yeah. find the cheapest yeah. possibility. Um. Yeah, I agree with this. I think I that we need to yeah. just put a halt on travel. I know that there are folks out there who have loved ones who live abroad, and it's tough. I can only imagine what would it be like to have a, you know, a relative that is in another country, your your mom or your dad. They're maybe in the last weeks of life, and I get it. But I think that's part of what we all have to do here is. If we're going to travel, they're not saying you can't. They're just saying it has to be done under these circumstances. And mm-hmm. I think I think it's the right thing to be doing. Well, you raise a good point in that, yes, there are exceptions to travel if you're dealing with um, with a, a sick relative or, or something of that nature. Yes, there obviously there are exceptions to, to certain rules. But what I think this is really targeting is the whole snowbirds um, and those and who snowboard are non-Canadians, for yeah, I was just going to say we should define what a Canadian snowbird is uh, to those who are not from Canada. Um, a snowbird is someone that vacations to sunny destinations or lives somewhere, or, or lives somewhere. Yes, yeah. so that a lot of people spend their winters in Florida, uh, in the Caribbean, uh, down in Mexico. Um, so a lot of retirees will rent condos and spend. You know, a couple of weeks, even a couple of months during the winter months to, yeah. to escape the weather. Yeah, especially um, now. If, if I guess a lot of retirees aren't changing their way of working as much, but now yeah. is a great time because you can be anywhere almost and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, the reason I, I this this caught my interest is because I was looking at a, at a CBC article about uh, the headlines being Canadian snowbirds abroad grapple with tough new travel rules that include a big hotel bill. And basically, it's talking about how these snowbirds, who are there just for vacation, so this is just for, for leisure only, yeah. are complaining that they're now going to be subject to this $2,000 um, hotel bill upon their arrival back in Canada. And my com- my reaction to that is too bad. Yeah. You know, this it is, too is bad. it is because I don't have sympathy for people that have made that decision to uh, to travel outside of the country for you know for for leisure reasons, and now they're complaining about it uh, up to a two thousand dollar hotel bill. You know what? If that is a deterrent to make to to make people think twice about leaving the country for vacation, especially as we're coming up to March break and everything, um, then yeah, this is this is what we should be doing. And I should also add that uh, a lot of Canada's major airlines have cancelled all flights to Mexico and the Caribbean uh, beginning today, being January 31st, all the way through to April 30th. Gosh, I'm sure they're so, happy about that. Yeah, but but it. I find it unusual that there are still flights, that there is, even though there's been a lot of uh, travel bans, um, that there's still people flying in and out of of various destinations. And 
yeah, it, it's. I'm. I was surprised to find out how many snowbirds are still uh, outside of the country right now. And yeah, if 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 you need to vacation that bad, then hey, I, I guess it's a free country. You can do what you want, but don't come looking to me for sympathy. Um, why why should the taxpayers be responsible for your uh, for your healthcare costs if you contract COVID nineteen vacationing down in Florida? And then you come back to Ontario with the with the virus, and you spread it to other people, or you end up getting hospitalized. You know why? Why should why should we be responsible, or, or why should um, you know we be exposed to these individuals that could potentially be spreading COVID nineteen? Um, you know, if I think if if you're traveling, then it, it's it's you're, you're on your own. You're, you you got to be able to take that risk. These are unprecedented and times, and everybody's going to have to make sacrifices. And absolutely. this is part of that. This is part of that. There's, it's just as yeah. simple as that. Trust me, I, I love my vacations. If, if it wasn't for COVID, I would probably be down in Florida right now. Yeah. Um, so I get it. I, I, I get the desire to want to travel. And, and it, it really, it's, it's tough not going away this winter. But that's... That's the sacrifices we make. That's it's doing your part to to stop the spread of COVID. Is isolating, self isolating, um, you know, re- reducing your your contact with people, and that includes not taking vacations. Agreed. Simple as that. Well, so these people that are taking these vacations, why do they have this sense of entitlement that they still deserve to go away to Florida when everybody else is making these sacrifices? This episode is brought to you by Pace Painting. Pace Painting, serving all your painting needs, whether commercial or residential. Reach Pace Painting at paintwithpace at gmail.com or via their Facebook page, Pace Painting, Inc. Or call Peter at 289-356-7744. Paint with Pace. Something else I want to talk about as we ease away from the COVID topic, but not quite totally away from it recently i've noticed that when i call customer service there's two things i want to address here actually let me address the covid piece first is this catch-all phrase now that i'm hearing when i call customer service you know whether it's about my internet service or my um, my heating bill whatever i'll call and i'll get the message that due to we are ex- currently experiencing higher volumes of calls right now due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's that's very what common. Is the, what does that mean exactly? I don't know. <laughs> that's the problem. I that don't excuse, know what that means. That, that held water back in April and May. It doesn't hold water yeah. anymore for yeah. me. Okay, yeah, now I guess... The, well, yeah, we're almost a year into this now. Why are you still experiencing a higher, higher than normal call volumes? But th- they say that all the time. If they it's, said that we're short-staffed due to COVID-19, that might be a little bit more understandable, but we are experiencing a high volume of calls due to the COVID-19 vaccine or the COVID-19 issue. I just think when it's it, a too easy an excuse right now to make, make up for poor customer service or long hold times. Especially when you're dialing into something that has nothing to do with COVID-19, like you're you're dialing into your uh, your internet provider, or uh, you know you're calling Lowe's customer service or something like that. 
you know, something that really shouldn't, at, at this stage of the game, really shouldn't be affected with, with COVID at this point. I think it's just too blanket you know, a statement to say it. Due to COVID-19, expect that our service is going to be shit. Yeah. And that's okay because, <laughs> of COVID, because of COVID. Yeah, because of COVID. Hey, we can make that excuse for no matter what. Hey, if you don't like this podcast, it's because of COVID, right? That's right. <laughs> if you find this podcast has been of lower quality than normal, blame COVID-19. Yeah. Yes, yes, there you go. That, that's our right. excuse for everything. A distant... A <laughs> but distant, you had another one, though. Yes. You, you had another pet peeve about that, right? I do. It also is in the customer service category. When did mm-hmm. we suddenly opt in to having our phone calls to customer service be recorded for quality and training purposes. When did that ever happen? Mm. Was there, was there, it seemed to me, and where this comes from is when you call customer service and you get the message that this call may be recorded for quality and training purposes. Well, not only Mm -hmm. that's how it used to be. Now it's actually morphing into this call will be used for quality and training purposes. And I'm thinking, what if I don't want it to be? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny you mention that because even before you had proposed the idea of, of this as a discussion piece for our, our podcast, I was subconsciously thinking about that the the other day, and I think I was, I think it was maybe Bell that I was calling up. And yeah, you're right that 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 catch-all phrase where this call will be recorded for training and customer service purposes or yeah, whatever it's quality it is. and training. And at, at the yeah, I remember thinking to myself, you know, for that that half second there, really, you know, it's I I don't have a choice in this. Like it, it will be recorded. I think so, there should be a please press one if you do not wish to be recorded. I think there should be some yeah. type of opt out for that. That's a privacy issue, I think. To I, was I believe, just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. No, it is a privacy issue because what if you're right? What if you don't want your conversation to be recorded so by saying that you're doing it for training and customer service purposes that they quality have that training. right now or quality and training purposes that they have that right to record your conversation and you know exactly and why they're recording it well what do you think oh it's so that they can say well sir we have a recording of you saying you asked for this extra package on your cable mm-hmm. plan that's what it's for yeah, so that's quality yeah. for in their mind. The quality that when yeah. you when you told us something you wanted and now you're saying you didn't, well, we can ensure the quality of our service by letting you hear yourself say, "Yeah, I'll take the the movie pack tier 3 option." Mm. Now what are you going to do, sir? You're lying to us. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to play it back, you son of a bitch. <laughs> well, the other thing I imagine, but, too, is that I, if they say training purposes, I totally imagine, you know, I have a call with these guys and it goes totally sideways. And then three months later, there's some sort of a training going on where they said, okay, now we'd like yeah. you to listen to the following call. Please let us know where the customer service rep went wrong. And that yes. would be my call <laughs> with, with uh, you know, the security guy or the internet provider and you know, yeah. they say well what would you have done in this situation so i'm like yeah, a guinea yeah. pig for the customer service yeah, i'm like yeah, a medical yeah. what do you call it the uh, i've donated my body of customer experience to to science yeah yeah you'll be the uh you'll be the person that has been labeled as the the belligerent or unruly customer that uh, that features within their their training videos but um, Never. I guess, I guess to our, our initial point, though, where 
in our opinion, and I'm sure we're not alone in this, that customer service in general has declined throughout COVID. Yet, here we are, they're talking about training and quality purposes. (laughs) But, gee, it really doesn't seem to be reflecting in the final product now, does it? All right, let's lighten it up. I've got some weird news here. All right, let's hear it. This one comes from Ripley's.com, which is a source that I've never... um, found before it's never come up on my radar but a couple of interesting stories that i found scottish town pleads pleads for return of beloved police mannequin police mannequin yeah scottish town is in a right state since their beloved road safety officer and mannequin alan disappeared saturday afternoon Residents of Braemar are learning, are, are pleading for the return of Alan, who has been doing his due diligence to remind drivers to slow down through the village of, probably going to pronounce it wrong, Aberdeenshire for the past two months. So this mannequin sits in front of like the welcome to this, the town. It says, it warns speeders approaching the village, but locals have been left stunned by his disappearance. Apparently, this mannequin has been kidnapped. Why would anyone want that? <laughs> oh, come on. I guess, it's, I guess it's... There's lots of weird folks out there, A, yeah. that think this is funny, and B, God only knows what they want that mannequin for. And, but a mannequin in a police uniform? Whew. Paul, there's lots yeah. of potential there. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Yeah. Yeah, you'd like to think that it's probably just a bunch of, of pranksters. Uh, but yeah, I guess it's sort of like a, a, a beloved mascot, especially if it's sort of a, a mascot of this little, uh, he said it's Scotland, right? He's not little. little. Oh, yeah. he's It's a town yeah, in Scotland. The, the, it's a village. Yeah, the little town, this little village, it, it's probably, it's like almost like a, a, a tourist attraction. Could be. You know, Could be. Drive by the sort of like uh, little towns out in the, the prairies, you know, the world's biggest ball of yarn, that type of thing. Maybe this uh, this police mannequin is this town's claim to fame. Who knows? Another story here. Oklahoma Bill calls for open season on Sasquatch. Okay. Oklahoma State Representative Justin Humphrey has introduced a new hunting bill that would establish an open season for tracking down the state's most elusive creature, Bigfoot. Humphrey's bill calls on Oklahoma Wildlife Commission to declare an official Bigfoot hunting season with specific dates and corresponding licenses and fees. Southern Oklahoma is known for the legendary Sasquatch's sightings and even hosts an annual Bigfoot festival for enthusiasts to unite. Well, if you kill the thing, you're going to lose all that tourism money, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I th- that could be a whole podcast topic in itself the whole debate about uh you know does bigfoot really exist um i had no idea that there was uh bigfoot sightings down in oklahoma i always thought it was in the pacific northwest mm. um yes. so yeah th- this He's this is traveling. definitely uh, yes apparently um yeah this is a topic i would not have expected certainly not out of oklahoma i don't know that this could be an idea to maybe create tourism Right. Um, the fact that you want hunters to, to come to Oklahoma and... Good time to be doing know, sp- that. Yeah, spend their money, let's spread the virus, that type of thing. 
Um, so yeah, it's very unusual. But yeah, you're right. If you you find Bigfoot, then the mystery might be uh, might be solved. And then what? Then what do you do? You know, I guess you you put them on display and make a museum, and then you get more tourists coming in. Maybe that's the idea. <laughs> yeah, I guess if they're charging license fees for this, uh, it'd be interesting to know how many people actually purchase one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, final weird news story. This one comes from my previous country of residency, Japan, which is no has no shortage of strange news or weird news stories. Okay, so Japanese entrepreneur wants to analyze your BO. Man, that sounds like a pretty stinky job. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Sorry, had to be said. A Japanese entrepreneur has now made it possible to send your sweat for a personalized stink analysis. Often too busy to bathe or change clothes during his grad school days, Shota Ishida, Shota Ishida took his personal experience to the lab. Realizing that he wouldn't necessarily get the truth from his friends if he asked them about his odor, Ishida was inspired to create a body odor analysis method to give others obsessed with their scent peace of mind from straight facts. Okay, so let me get this straight. This analysis is to determine whether or not you smell or not? Yeah, yeah. Apparently he says, according to Ishida, and I don't know what his research, where he got this from, he says 1% of the Japanese population has anxiety associated with their body odor. Here's a better idea. Why don't you just take a shower? Up in the shower for two minutes. Nobody can be that busy to not be able to take a shower. Well, some <laughs> some people do have body odor no matter how hard they shower. There's some medical issues at, at, at hand in some cases. Hmm. But this is... The real reason for this is the the concreteness of this of the analysis. So it could put people at ease when they actually get some type of scientific answers. Like he says, straight facts. Okay, so does this analysis include any kind of medical information? Like if, if, if yes. you're receiving... Okay, so maybe that's a bit of a different story that we have to analyze here, is that if you're getting like a medical analysis, because I know that a lot of, you know, obviously body fluids can be used for determining, um, you know, as I said, obviously health um, health parameters, but... Um, yeah, if, if there's a, a medical reason for this, then well, okay, maybe. Not sure if there's but a medical reason, but there's a medical procedure. So, it, okay, this this guy bought a he teamed up with a chemist friend and spent fifty thousand dollars for a secondhand gas chromatography mass spectrometer, or okay. a GCMS for short. This technology is known as the gold standard for identifying chemical substances and is used heavily in episodes of CSI and real-life forensics. So, Mm. let me explain how this thing works. So, the client receives a white T-shirt coated in activated charcoal, wears it for 24 hours, drops it in the mail, and Ishida gets to work. The result is an analysis of of the key offenders in their odor, focusing on 25 of the most pungent compounds that make up a person's scent okay so could that be influenced by diet or by the oh, amount yeah. of could fluids be. that you drink yeah absolutely i don't know if it'll give you any like answers around that what you know here's why you smell like this i think it's more it's 150 dollars, and you get this analysis i guess that says here's here's what you smell like and actually he uses some some descriptions in here 
It's 25 of the most pungent organic compounds that make up each individual smell profile, including, for example, diacetyl, which is blamed for back-of-the-head odor, back-of-the-head odor, and nonenal, which is associated with old-age smell. <laughs> there is such a thing, right? <laughs> so he'll he'll actually send a printout to you that will say whether your odor falls within the normal range or not. But then he also carries out a low-tech sniff test for the underarms, collar area, and back, and offers helpful descriptors such as oily, gamey, like onions starting to rot. These are descriptors that he would provide to say, okay, your back smells like onions starting to rot, or your uh, armpits smell gamey. Okay, so I, I I question this on a couple of different. Well, his business model. First of all, 150 bucks. That's a lot. I, I don't picture. Well, I could be wrong, but I don't picture a lot of people spending 150 dollars for sweat analysis. But okay, so if you're sending, if you're mailing in a, a sweaty T-shirt, um, keep in mind that obviously a sweaty T-shirt is going to stink a lot more if it's been sitting around for a few days. Um, you know, for both of us, we, we like to run. Obviously, we uh, we have sweaty T-shirts after we're, we're done our runs. Yeah, but I don't um, think he's saying, yeah, when, go take it, this shirt and run in it or exercise. I think you just put it on and wear it. Like me, I'm wearing a white T-shirt right now. I think you just wear it for 24 hours. I don't think you're supposed to do anything too crazy with it. You just wear it nor- like you would a normal shirt. All right. So, in, in other words, if you smell gamey after 24 hours of just regular activity. Right. Then, then maybe that's an issue. Okay. And to your question about who would be interested, it says he's sold more than a thousand kits and he supplements hmm. his revenue by consulting for makers of odor treatment products. He's about to launch a new armpit only analysis kit and is weighing a halitosis rating service too. That's uh, for breath. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, oh, he also offers face to face consultation, uh, by the way. And, uh, at the end of the meeting, at one meeting he had with a face-to-face person, he said that the person grabbed his hand in gratitude, and actually in Japan, shaking hands isn't as common. So he said that he was quite stunned to see someone so happy to get this um, his services that they actually shook his hand. Hmm. Interesting. Wow, he's found a real uh, niche market. And yeah. it's not for the faint of heart. You gotta have a, a tough nose for that kind of business. But hey, good on him if he's making money out of uh, something that can be pretty stinky, but fits a need. Main clientele includes thirty women in their thirties and forties. I'll finish up just with that. But they say that parents often buy the kit for their teenagers. For most of my adult clients, their anxiety begins in school and then dogs them throughout their lives, holding them back in their careers and even in romance. So if we can nip this in the bud early, it's great. Hmm. Okay, Paul, we've covered a lot of ground here. Tried to cover some of the more serious issues and some of the more comical ones in the episode. And uh, until next time. Yeah, this has been an episode that we've covered a lot of information on. I know I will view my sweat and my uh, my body odor a lot differently from now on. Yeah, I just got 12 more hours with this white shirt. Then I got to throw it in the yeah. mail and wait for the results. There you go. Let me know how it goes.